Hi, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Lauren. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demyth Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we go on a pilgrimage. We tell small white lies. And we speak to Hannah Kainer about their novel, God Killer. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for joining us. Please tell our listeners about yourself. Hello, I'm Hannah. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a fantasy writer from Northumberland based in Edinburgh in Bonnie, Scotland. And my first, well, my debut novel is coming out, well, as as of recording in about three days time. So yeah, very excited. As of release date, it will be on the day. Oh my God. So on the day. So technically today, so congratulations. <laughs> my first fantasy debut novel is out today. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And what kind of books do you like to read? Well, my first love is science fiction and fantasy. Um, I've always loved adventure stories and kind of mythic tales and quests with superheroes and, and bad guys. But I mean, honestly, now... And to be fair, throughout my life, I'll just read anything I can get my hands on. I'm not very genre specific. I love history books. I love fairy tales. I love romance. I love just, yeah, I think the way that people tell stories is just brilliant. So I'll read anything. So this is going to kind of put you on the spot and you can pick more than one. But we are fresh into 2023. So what's an arc either, an arc that you've read that you recommend people should pick up? Or something you haven't read yet, but you're super, super hyped for that is due out this year? Uh, Well, I'm in the middle of reading a couple of arcs, actually. Um, One is The Revels by Stacey Thomas, which is out this year. And that's kind of witchcraft uh, set. Well, it's about witch hunters, witchcraft set in the kind of last years of the the king who got his head lopped off, whose name I constantly forget, Charles I. Um, And... (laughs) Um, so it's about a writer who gets apprenticed to an ex-witch hunter who is now a judge. And I'm not really sure what transpires, but it's looking brilliant at the moment. Um, it's beautifully written. And the other one um, is Dragonfall by L. Lamb. And it's kind of sexy dragon fallen angel with heists and thievery and uh, in, a, in another world. So I'm, I'm really excited about the sort of refreshing of the ja- dragon genre. I am very optimistic that they will be coming on because I have sort of spoken to their publicist a little bit about it, but it's too far away for us to be speaking to them yet. But I oh, think hopefully that should be happening. Ella's a master of uh, just, she they talk so brilliantly about their books and they put so much effort and time into world building and building these meticulous um, and exciting and logistically cohesive worlds. Um, which I think is just wonderful. So I'm I'm part way through Dragonfall. It's absolutely brilliant so far, and I think it's going to be an amazing book. And that cover is legendary as well. So I think I want that as a tattoo. Do you think I need to ask their permission to get that as a tattoo? Probably. No, I don't think so. Well, I got <laughs> I got a book related tattoo and just got it done and sent it to the the author of the book, and they were thrilled. So. Oh, it's one of yeah. There's like kind of some some I guess what's the word bucket list things as an author to have someone like love your book enough to get a tattoo of it um though I am I'm getting a tattoo related to Godkiller in February so I'm very much excited for that well I think you should 
debut novel it's it's worth celebrating I think so just have that on your skin forever it'll be brilliant and you asked if we had any house rules before we started and you said like no swearing well can we talk about how fucking awesome the cover is clearly no (laughs) swearing house there's and there's not a no swearing house rule but who was your cover designer because it's it's so pretty the gold foil yeah it's beautiful um so the cover designer was tom roberts it was like beautiful dreamlike sort of celtic and mythology inspired art you can find him on instagram and twitter and like every time any of his new work is out it just i die it is it's gorgeous it's very detailed the color use and the sort of way that he imagines um or reimagines the world is is just fantastic um so the got the cover of god killer the end papers the map um, and the shields and symbols were all designed by Tom. Um, and he's just like, he's just a legend. He's a lovely guy. I don't know if this is going to be on the actual physical book or whether it's just on the arc, but is that, how do you pronounce Skeddy? Skeddy? Skeddy. Skeddy. Is that, it must be Skeddy. That is Skeddy. That is Skeddy on the back. I've got my hard copy here. Okay. So he's on the back still. Good. On the final version. Yeah. That, I mean, that made me so excited when I saw it in the first uh, drawings. It was lovely to have him just hiding in the background. I feel like he deserves to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Kirsten's family were killed by zealots of a fire god. Now, she makes a living killing gods and enjoys it. That is until she finds a god she cannot kill. Skeddy, a god of white lies, has somehow bound himself to a young noble, and they are both on the run from unknown assassins. Joined by a disillusioned knight on a secret quest, they must travel to the ruined city of Blenraden, where the last of the wild gods reside, to each beg a favour. Pursued by demons and in the midst of burgeoning civil war, they will face a reckoning. Something is rotting in the heart of their world, and only they can be the ones to stop it. Where did the inspiration come from for this story? Was it one thing that triggered, or was it culmination of a few different sparks? Uh, I mean, like, I say with anything, but with, with this in particular, like, inspiration comes from 12 different places, and none of them have, for me, like, a pinpoint of, ah, that was it. But I knew I wanted to write a couple of sort of archetypes and kind of rewrite write a couple of archetypes, like the mythic quest, so, like, the Aeneid or the Hobbit, and the hero's journey um, and kind of think of that in the context of, of a different kind of world. And then I wanted to rethink the hero themselves. So, I mean, some of your great archetypes, you've got like Gawain from Gawain and the Green Knight, or you've got Aragorn from Lord of the Rings or Fitz from um, Assassin's Apprentice, the sort of lone, rugged hero. And I wanted to rewrite it as, as a woman and as a queer woman. Um, and the kind of the world and the story came from the initial main character who was kissing um so that's kind of that those mythic quests were definitely I think the bedrock of this book I think I first pitched it as Gawain and Furiosa go on a quest in the aftermath of Troy um so that was yeah that's kind of like what I wanted to write and that's where it all came together and this is marketed as God Killer book one. So is it going to be a duology, a trilogy, a series? It's a trilogy, baby. Woo! It's going to be three. I'm writing book two at the moment and planning book three or it's taking form in the 
sort of shape that book two is leaving for it. Um, I originally planned it as a duology, kind of like a, a there and back again, but I kind of, I think the world sort of lent itself to a bigger story. And as you start like pulling out those threads, you realise you need a bit more space to to bring them together. I'm excited to see where it goes with pulling threads, definitely. And did you always plan to have multiple POVs? Because as a reader, when it's done well, I love it. So it thrilled me about this because I thought some of the POVs with this was really interesting as well. Oh, thank you. Thinking about Skeddy. <laughs> so, no, I didn't originally plan it to have um, multiple points of view. I even tried, I mean, I wrote it first, as I said, from Kissin and her point of view. And I tried it in a few different tenses and a few different versions, like, uh, third person first person and then kind of felt that as the characters developed they had such different voices and different drives and opinions and even journeys in the same book where they're all physically together but uh, emotionally their journeys are quite different I felt I needed to give them their own voice and have them sort of experience the same things in slightly different ways while still kind of moving the story on at pace it was difficult to fit that many characters into quite in terms of adult fantasy quite a short book um so having a really sort of strong idea of what their voices were took a bit longer than I initially intended I thought it was going to be like super fast just one point of view easy story and then as I started threading the rest in it was like oh oh I need to make sure they have distinct ideas and distinct kind of uh, personalities rather than it just all being me telling it through their perspective and the opening of the book is so visual and I could I could feel like I was there when we first meet Kissin. Definitely. You can you can feel the tension building up. Was that the original opening or was that originally going to be a flashback? Original opening. Um, the first line hasn't changed uh, in every single draft of the book. Uh, it's been always been her father fell in love with the god of the sea. Because uh, I love the rhythm of that line and it kind of sets up the world in sort of only a few words. And I actually wrote the opening a bit longer but as a short story about a girl's survival about her anger and a god's love and I kind of realized I didn't want to let this character go um and wanted to kind of give her more of a story it does remind me a little bit of the opening of the Iliad as well that kind of impactful kind of sums up a lot and just hits you that impactful line Writing it, I was kind of, yeah, thinking in medias res, it was thinking about the Iliad um, or the Aeneid, like kind of how to catapult someone into a story. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do, especially in stories set in other worlds, is how to ground someone quickly enough and then also keep their interest without overwhelming them with details. And, you know, I'm still learning. I don't think I've necessarily got it as perfect as perfect can be, but I think that's kind of... Um, hopefully we'll continue to grow as a writer and um, it was you know working with an editor and it was really really helpful making sure that I wasn't just throwing in 18 different names and types of gods and bits of history that are all still in my head but I just tried to keep them slightly sparingly on the page. The opening was kind of horrible but it's so impactful that it does draw you in so much why did the neighbours want to sacrifice the sea god's favoured family? I know they're kind of under the thrall of the spy god, but still. 
I think it's a good question. I mean, so and it also kind of builds into the the law of the book. So like a sacrifice of something you care for is is the biggest offering you can give a God. Like, and it's so something that means a lot to you. It doesn't have to be kind of like high monetary value, but something that you don't want to part with because it's something that love and energy you give it is that that's what you impart to the God. And even better if it's not just an object that you care for or have cared for, it's better if it's flesh and blood. And even better still, if it belongs to another God, so you're kind of giving that item or that person or that family to the God that you want the love and care and support of. And this family, Kissen's family, were the last family standing against a tide of flame, the last family standing against um, Zeth in this village and sort of still giving their loyalty to the sea God. So they were the best offering to make to kind of say, we are offering you these, our neighbours, the last people who are still like kind of uh, believing in this old God of these shores. So you will love us and you will pay attention to us. It's a really, really big sacrifice. And the neighbors, yes, in the thrall of a fire God, but they do it by choice. Um, they make those decisions to benefit from what they think is, is, is going to be a successful engagement with a God who can give them money and power. It felt worse as well that they, they knew each other. If it had just been some like random strangers just on a bit of a rampage, just like causing anarchy for the fire god, you think, ah, okay, fair enough. But they knew these people. It just made it so much worse. Yeah, it's it was quite painful to write. And also kind of the complexity it sort of brings to the world is that kind of gods have power, but then people also have decision-making power and who they believe in and why they believe in them and what they're willing to do to um, gain wishes or boons or prayers or whatever a god can give them so it had to be really personal and really personal to kiss him some of the characters are lgbt plus in the book was this important for you to include yes absolutely a lot of fantasy i read growing up i felt like it wasn't a, a place that I was allowed to exist in, um, at least not as I am. Um, I mean, as a woman to start with, who was so often either babes or bitches and who could barely step through the world without being an isolated anom- anomaly or being threatened with violence or sexual violence. And if you were a woman in queer or just a person in queer or trans or anything other than these kind of what became quite rigid classical fantasy roles, Um, assigned by some traditions of fantasy it was even worse you were kind of either the butt of a joke or you were criminalized or you were killed off or pitied or reviled and you were almost always alone even if you were part of the story and so writing as a writer I wanted to write a book for the the angry kid (laughs) that I was reading these books and not seeing myself in them and the the queer woman I am and wanted to kind of make a world where who you are isn't what puts you in isolation it isn't what kind of um kicks you to the edge of society it's it's the decisions that you make um and so it was kind of important to me to have people be able to read this book and feel that this is a world that they could belong in that they could exist in um and that was really important to me one thing that's really cool about the book is not you don't just have that kind of representation you also have a character who is deaf and other characters have learned to sign to communicate with them and 
also Kisson loses her leg in the sacrifice at the beginning of the book. This this isn't a spoiler for anyone who hasn't read it. And we just like how normal both of these things are and how normal it is for characters to discuss a fake leg and look at ways to help her. How important was that for you to include as well? So that's an interesting one because I'm, I'm not disabled myself. Um, so, and I didn't sort of begin the story with the intention of writing a disabled character or a world with disability in it, though disability exists in every world. But I did realize that kind of at the beginning that there needed to be two sort of sacrifices. And if you think back to that law of um, something that's important to you and very good, something that's flesh and blood, even better. I knew Kissin would have to lose something in order to have those two sacrifices, one to survive the night and one which was uh, a life or to have her life saved. And so I knew she had to lose something important like an eye or a hand and decided on her leg. But from that, I was also became aware that I was going to be writing a disabled character that was going to use a prosthesis. And I did a fair amount of research into it and I wanted to kind of really take responsibility for that and if I was going to write a disabled character to do it well um so I researched into tropes and frustrations that disabled fantasy readers have with fantasy and fiction and found a lot of them were quite similar to the the gripes I had as a kid which was you're often isolated you're often criminalized like scarring or use of wheelchairs is often sort of like ends up being similarly described as bad people like in James Bond almost every kind of villain that you have is somehow disfigured or scarred in some way and that was awful to kind of see how common that was and I thought about my friends who are disabled and what's important to them and decided that one of the key important things was to have a community support people who understood who you were and accepted you as who you were you weren't something to be fixed you are whole and complete in yourself so I also worked with authenticity editors to try and make Kissen's experience authentic but I also wanted to make sure that Kissin had that community and had to think about what brought them together, how they showed their love, what their jobs were, and also how they were different. So with, with sign language, I sort of wrote in um, a deaf character and I thought that the way that Kissin would show love and the people around her would show, would show love would be through learning that language, learning that communication. Kissin refuses to re- learn to read, but she learns to sign to make sure she can speak to her sister. And even if she's annoyed her, even if she kind of hates her sometimes, and that's one of the ways that she shows love is as a basis, I treat you as a human and I communicate with you. Um, and that's really important. It's a bit harsh that like the woman's lost her family and now you've taken her leg away. <laughs> Sorry. Did you start with the characters or did you start with the world building? I guess they, they kind of belong to each other, the characters in the world. I think I imagined Kissin first. Like I had this idea of a god killer who killed gods and I wanted to figure out why they were angry at the world, why they were a long warrior type. And from knowing that there was a character who killed gods, then I was, well, it's got to be a world with gods in it. And so the kind of characters and the world sort of fed off each other. And then I wanted her to have sort of foils as well. So people who had different experiences of the world where she's like quite a straightforward character. She's very much, uh, this is what I think, this is who I am. And she's angry and she's full of love, but she's also full of, um, well, fury. And so I wanted to have someone who was kind of a bit more innocent in the world. Um, So got Inara, 
who sort of through the book as a coming of age and someone who's also weary like she is or will has experienced the world in all its terrible ways but still has a kind of a core of leniency and sort of acceptance which is sort of more elo and then we have Skeddy, who is almost Kirsten's complete opposite because he is well is a god he wants to live he wants to survive and she is deeply suspicious and doesn't believe really that gods in the end deserve to so each kind of character came out as a element of the world that I wanted to sort of be be perceived or be shown I just wanted to pet Skeddy. <laughs> like I'm a, I'm an animal person and when you sort of described him I was like oh I could I, I would quite be a crappy put him on my lap pet him a little bit I'd love it this He's is so cute this is why I took a second after that we were talking about the cover because I've got a controversial opinion that I didn't particularly like Skeddy <gasps> yeah well oh this is fun I will but I mean obviously we're not in spoilers yet so <laughs> hello <laughs> I wasn't sure whether to say it then or to leave it till later, but now we've now we've mentioned him again. I think all the characters have an element in them which I think is is unlikable. Um, I don't think anyone is a is a perfectly good or grand person um, all the time. And yeah, Skeddy has some elements to him that are pretty damn unlikable. Um, so I kind of like that there's a bit of a conflict here. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. Like some of the things that Kissen does or any of them, they there are elements of them. You haven't written, you know, people-pleasing characters. They are very nuanced, but it's just what Skeddy does, I just think. Well, I'll tell you later. <laughs> He's a very naughty boy. He is a very <laughs> naughty boy. It's just the fact that you've put him in this cute body. And if he was a mixture of gross things, I don't know, like maybe part crab or maybe part slug. I don't know how this would work. But, you know, <laughs> things that are not cute and cuddly, I probably would like him a bit less. But he's it's like, not, oh. He's not that cuddly. He's got antlers. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, man, you could still cuddle him. I could. I No, I could cuddle him 100%. Yeah, I'd quite like a skeddy plushie. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. Clearly not for Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> no, she can get it and then burn it. Are any of the places mentioned in the book based on or inspired by real life places? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I think kind of, so the first city you come, the big city you come to is, is Latvia, which is kind of based on like Alexandria or Cordoba, Baghdad, Venice. Like it's a city of learning and sort of the canals do have an element of, of Venice in there. But I guess when I was thinking of it, I was thinking more of, sort of um well to be fair Venice is very Mediterranean but kind of southern Spain kind of architecture and then the other sort of big city in it is well I guess there's two more there's Blenraden which is the city of the gods and sort of elements in there were maybe maybe a bit of Jerusalem maybe Beirut maybe a bit of Kyoto like but what I was really thinking of when I was writing that city was the sort of medieval cult of the saints and the pilgrimages people would take and they'd collect pilgrim badges and you know people from all over would go to the same place for different reasons so that was kind of yeah a holy city but also a holy city where people go to is also a center of cunning and trade and treachery and thievery um so I kind of wanted this really sort of hive-like idea of a city and then Gefferton 
um, which is on the end papers of uh, the sort of the standard edition um, and the Waterstone special edition. I think I told um, Tom, the artist, it was kind of like Ponte Vecchio and the Argonoth from Lord of the Rings had a baby. So like Ponte Vecchio is like kind of a bridge with like a load of buildings on it. And obviously the Argonoth from Lord of the Rings, those massive statues that stand at the edge of the waterfall. Um, so yeah, that was, that kind of was how I imagined that that place. Ponte Vecchio, that's in Florence, isn't it? Yes. Oh, I, I just went there. Oh, did you? Yes. Oh, I've not been since like, I was like 18 or something, but I really want to go back and see if it's how I remembered it. I loved it. So mm. I've just got to get have to go back. I love uh, I love Italy. Fascinating place. Sort of the middle of Italy. Are any of the gods that you describe throughout the book based on any real mythologies? Definitely some of them were inspired by Celtic and Norse sort of folklore. And I guess a bit of Greek, like I said, there's some elements of Poseidon, but obviously he's like kind of a sort of a lot less powerful and in a very localised area. There's some that kind of I describe in passing like the god of the hunt, I imagine, kind of as him, the hunter um, from Celtic sort of folklore. So, yeah, I kind of took some elements of gods or fairy stories or superstitions and sometimes brought them in. But then some of them were just kind of, I don't know, I imagined a, a god of the ways and what they would look like and what kind of scents and, and sounds you would feel with this god and tried to kind of create something a bit new. So I guess a little bit old, a little bit new, a little bit of schmush, like the gods, I guess. I'm going to try not to butcher names of characters and houses and things, but Inara. Okay, That's it. Inara is the daughter of the house Kreia. That's it. Inara is the daughter of the house Kreia. And it turns out that she is tethered to a small god who is the god of white lies, Skeddy. And Skeddy is a cross between a hare, a deer and a bird. And it's a bit bonkers. So what made you decide on this cross specifically? I mean, it's cute, but they are things that you don't necessarily think of to put together. Well, you asked if any of the gods were based on real gods. And Skeddy's actually based not on a god, but on a sort of folktale, um, a German folktale of a Volpertinger. Uh, so it's from German folklore, um, or I think in the US, it kind of is quite similar to a jackalope. So these stories about the Volpertinger are kind of similar to the stories like the Scots tell about a haggis, the mysterious animal that you find in a forest. And usually it's a trick newcomers to the area or to entertain children. So, yeah, I've always loved sort of uh, stories like that. The ones that have been passed around for a while, the ones that are very, very local. And uh, I also love the Volpertinger. I love kind of sort of chimera type creatures. So, that was it. It's definitely is plucked from our own mythology. That one almost directly. I was going to ask if there's any Germanic influences because I think some of the names were quite Germanic based. Some of the names some of the gods. Them, some of them were. Some of them were kind of from a sort of more Gaelic. Um, but I sort of tried to keep the names not too sourced in our local history or like kind of world history to give it a bit of its own own flavour. Back to Inara. She goes to find kissing, which she does at a bar. But how significant is it the moment is the moment where Rosalie, the barkeep, doesn't recognize her as the daughter of the lady crier? Yeah, she seems to get really like offended by this. But for Rosalie, it was just like, oh, yeah, well, she doesn't look like her. It's just a kid. Yeah. Just a kid. Um, 
it's it becomes more significant as the book co- goes on and the the books go on as to why Inara was kind of very much cloistered in her home. So I don't want to kind of um, put too much emphasis on it, but Inara is kind of the heir to all of the lands that these people live on. Mm-hmm. People have no idea that she exists or that she might be sort of wandering around with a god attached to her. So it's kind of, it's unnerving for Inara at first, but it becomes, as the book goes on, a bit more clear that her mother is is hiding things from her. Talking about her mum hiding things, on page 39, there's, we have Skeddy's POV, and there's a little conversation. Well, it's, it's not a conversation, because they kind of talk telepathically. They have this sort of telepathic connection between Skeddy and Inara. And she says, I can't lie to my mother again. He's like, well, she lies to you. And we know that Skeddy likes lies because he is the god of white lies. But for me, there, he's kind of like that voice in the back of your head that's telling you this this thing. It's like, you know, you know you're being lied to, but she's almost trying to justify it. I think, why would she differentiate to herself between the lies that she's telling her mum that she feels are bad, even though it's for a good cause and the ones that her mum told her are in her sort of best interests using the like bunny quotes here (laughs) so for Inara at this point particularly after that experience with with Rosalie she's starting to see that her mother might not be who she thought she was and that she's hiding things from her but she's really kind of clinging on to that idea that I think a lot of us not all of us have had the luxury to have but a lot of us have when they were young that our parents love us, look after us, want, what, want what's best for us, that they're the good guys. And when you fuck up, you're the naughty one. You're the bad one. You've done something wrong. So she's also kind of almost idolizes her mother. She thinks she's the best person and that she wouldn't do anything actually bad or actually naughty unless like kind of she has to. Whereas Inara sort of sees herself as lying to her mother as, as punishable, even if it's a white lie, even if it's kind of for a um, a good reason but she just kind of can't quite reconcile those aspects of who her mother actually is and who she is as well so Skeddy is very much that voice in the back of her head trying to kind of bring to reality while her world's world starts kind of um, falling apart um, at this point but she's looking away from it she doesn't want to know it she still wants to kind of hold on to her childhood I guess some of it really is an age thing because she's young, isn't she? She's really young, isn't she? Yeah, she's like 12. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but is did her mum try and hide her away for her protection? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to reveal too much to you. I know, I know. It was like, oh, we're not quite in the spoiler section yet. So. <laughs> no, and that's actually, that's a, that's a spoiler ongoing. So... You're not getting the answer. Okay. <laughs> Weasle out of me, but I'll, uh, I'll stand uh, firm. Other than yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it sometimes when authors are like, oh, we ask them a question. And they're like, oh, read book two. Oh, actually, maybe read book three as well. <laughs> <laughs> this is the point of the episode where we're about to delve into spoilers. So if you haven't made a sacrifice of the gods of secrets, turn off now and come back when you've read the book.
so we've already mentioned that Kissen's family was sacrificed at the beginning of the book. And when we meet her years later, she's a god killer. And one thing that I guess both of us found really interesting was that she wouldn't automatically just break a god shrine. Sort of to quote, none of the shrines were powerful enough to need a god killer. Kissen didn't touch them as they passed. It wasn't worth it. She didn't burn the prayers of the poor just for fun. Did you write this element of her character just to round her out? Or is it that she's not being paid for it? She hides a great deal of sympathy for people behind that mercenary exterior. Because she does say at one point, yeah, I'm not being paid, so what's the point? Mm. But she does know that gods do help people. And in these kind of poorer areas, like the gods aren't very powerful. They might kind of be able to make you know help with a good harvest every once every couple of years um some of them won't even have have bodies at this point they might still be twists of spirit and power and so for her she kind of has a line where gods tip into as soon as they start kind of thinking feeling demanding she starts like kind of going very much anti but as they're kind of sort of supplementing people's hopes and keeping people sometimes alive there's a bit more conflict there because she does really care for people she absolutely hates gods (laughs) but there is a sort of a seed of potential sympathy there I really want to talk at the end about the sort of psychology on the other side for the people that are using gods and some of that reaction but I want to save it till the end but I just wanted to ask this question first but that I'm excited about But yeah, I wanted to ask this question, kind of, to break into spoilers. (laughs) Inara and Skeddy seek out Kissin as they want to be untethered. Kissin doesn't trust Skeddy, and it's a surprise to Inara to learn that the others in Kissin's home don't either. The fact they merely tolerate him and they don't want to hurt him because, by proxy, they don't want to hurt her, seems to have never crossed her mind before. So I took this as a part of her kind of starting to, to grow up and learn more about the people because obviously now she's left home and learning about people's motivations and not everyone's as pure and innocent as she is. Yeah, I think she kind of at this point starts to realise that people have depths to them that they don't necessarily express at face value. And because she can see people's emotions and how they sort of express themselves right at the surface, she kind of thinks that she's she's got it down in the kind of way that a lot of 12-year-olds think, or at least I did like yeah the world is fine I've got it sorted and because she's just like had that relief that she can share the secret of Skeddy with people and that they're kind of like yeah it's a god but we're not going to turn you in that's like a huge fear that she's been carrying since she was a wee one like through her life and suddenly she can actually talk with him out in the open and that he's there and people are treating him fairly well but then when he oversteps in a home that belongs to a god killer and people who have seen the worst sides of gods they come down really hard and that surprises her that it sort of there is a depth to these people that they do have a history that isn't something that she can easily grasp or perceive and she has to come to terms with that very quickly and it does it does give her a shock because everything's not kind of all going her way there are people who are reacting against it and pushing back on her and and the god Kissen tries to take Inara home and when they get there they see her home is burning to the ground so Kissen then decides to look after her until she's safe. I sort of took this that Kissen feels a similarity to Inara at this point because she also lost her family as a child and 
kind of that she almost begrudgingly wants to protect her because she seems sheltered and very sweet. Yeah, I think, to be honest, I think it Kism would have done this with, with anyone, no matter how kind of sweet and sheltered they were. This is one of the things that kind of connects them through the book. And she says in the book that she refuses to let the girl face the world alone as she had to um, when she lost everything that she had. She does see in Anara the equivalent of what and who she once was and wants to protect her from the world that might hurt her or abuse her or kind of push her to extremes of desperation. And that kind of, I guess we spoke about kissing, not sort of tipping over just random tiny shrines in the middle of nowhere out of spite. She does really care about people and she really wants to look after Inara. And that's kind of sort of the core of her being. She's got kind of a big heart, um, even if she's a bit sort of hard on the outside. And on page 108, so as someone who has sort of been through some stuff and has done some sort of hardcore grieving, I really appreciated how this this is this probably sounds better in my head than I'm going to say it, but how you dealt with the dealing of people who are grieving. So how people actually treat people that are grieving, because Skeddy notices that Kissen has just got Inara doing things. She's not feeding her things that are cliches like oh it's all going to be okay you know it'll get better like sure but that's not what she needs in the moment in the moment she needs to be distracted and that's something that Kissen has seen like earlier in their time together that her being distracted and doing things makes her feel better and I really liked that and I felt like people who they're not reading the book for that but they can definitely learn of how to have compassion in a different way from reading this thank you um I think kind of if you have experienced significant grief yourself or the grief of loved ones around you everyone reacts to it in very different ways and and needs care in different ways as well but this has been one of the more consistent things for me is sometimes when the whole world has kind of come about you you just need to find reasons to keep going and you're not really going to believe in your heart the things when people say everything's going to be okay. Like maybe you're kind of thinking, yes, everything will be okay eventually. But right now you feel like utter shit. Really, sometimes you just need someone who's there to keep you going and distract you and to move you forward through that time. Because time when you're grieving really feels endless. So, yeah, thank you. I kind of wanted to bring out sort of those two sides, I suppose, of grief because... Sometimes you do need a sort of a loving friend to be like, it's going to be okay to coddle you along. But sometimes you do need to be distracted, not lied to, just given movement and shape to your days. And I don't feel like they had that kind of relationship yet. Yeah, no, they didn't. For her to kind of give her a hug and pat her on the head and be like, oh, they're there, precious, it'll be fine. And be like, well, she probably doesn't want that from you. So... I think Kissen's a really good kind of friend and mentor to her then. And I really like that moment. That moment really stood out to me. I really enjoyed, well, not enjoyed, but right in that moment felt important in terms of their, their characters as well and sort of who they become to each other as it, the sort of story moves along. Kissen, Inara and Skeddy set out on a pilgrimage. And at this point, no one really knows the truth about anyone else within the group. And they're deliberately giving false names but then Kissen deliberately takes them to a tavern that 
because they're with someone called Ello and she deliberately takes them to a specific tavern so that someone might recognize him why does she do this um so we just talked about how Kissinger is actually a big soft-hearted person but she's also a massive dick um <laughs> she knows he's a knight she knows Elo is a knight she knows he was a commander of an army that fought the gods and now she knows she, that he's sneaking on a pilgrimage to a dead city so she is deeply suspicious of him and she kind of wants to fuck with him a little bit and to put him in a position where he has to react where he's kind of like forced to reveal something about himself um because he's, he's such a guarded person so for her she wants to make him feel so uncomfortable or so kind of or potentially recognized so she can learn more about him so either he fucks off or he starts talking um I, I that's get why that. I get that but also she's suspicious of this guy for not being you know open and honest while she's also giving a fake name oh yeah because and hiding <laughs> and hiding her reasons for doing the trip and all of their <laughs> yeah um but for her she's right he's wrong she's doing absolutely fine she's on her, her trip for her own reason she doesn't really empathize with this guy yet She's just kind of like, um, I have my own reasons. They're none of your business, but I do want to know about you. <laughs> so as I said, she is a dick. There's a point in her in a monologue where she's kind of moaning about the fact he's a knight and saying this and this and this and handsome. It's like, oh, really? You, you, you think he's handsome, do you? Among all this bad stuff. Like, I see you. <laughs> kind of, they are really similar in some ways, but also kind of opposites, like, He's sort of upright and firm and sort of, uh, you know, quiet and restrained and keeps a lot of his feelings inside. He's quite like inward, where she's just kind of like out on the page. Like, I will hide things, which is my principle to do so, but I will also call you names. And she can't, (laughs) she's very bad at keeping that in. She keeps her emotions in, but everything else is bubbling on the surface. But I took that difference as he's obviously got a military type background. And if you if you interact with people who used to be ex-army or ex-military, they tend to be very reserved and very and, mm. and watching and more observant than blurting everything out. Yeah. In some in most cases that I've known, obviously I'm sure there's example, you know, there's exceptions to every rule, but yeah. Um I was trying to kind of as I was sort of discovering Elo's character, that was absolutely kind of one of the things that I wanted to bring out in him is sort of there is a level of, of discipline there that Kissen's never developed um, and kind of thinks is a bit poncy. Um, but that's also something that in the military you kind of need. You need that restraint and sort of that kind of uh, bundled emotion because you have had to deal with a lot of other people doing exactly the same thing as you, whereas Kissen has sort of focused more on being alone. In the tavern... Inara reads someone's palm so she reads Nat's palm and a few things happen that I'd like to talk about in the scene so the first is that Skeddy talks through Inara and this seems to be for the first time because she she makes a comment on it in her like in a monologue and then when they speak to each other and she's very visibly clearly shaken by the fact that he's done this but he seems genuinely surprised that she isn't happy with it like why is why is he surprised so from his perspective, I think it's easy for Skeddy and Inara to forget the imbalance of power that's between them. Like he is a god, like his godhood is the essential part of who he is. 
it's in his nature, like him succeeding at his himself is a triumph to him. But Inara is, is a child and kind of sees him, as we were talking earlier, Lauren, uh, as a bit of a pet, like kind of he is sort of, he's cute and he's been with her for all of her life and she's sort of hidden him like a sort of uh, invisible friend. But this is where you see that the first time you see a real potential for conflict that he's kind of like, oh yeah, I did this thing and this is actually working. I'm talking through you of being able to overpower you. This is like a new element of myself. And for Inara, she has just been, someone has just overtaken her ability to speak. And she knows at more feels at this point, maybe it's through necessity and that makes things a bit easier. She can just sit back maybe, but it's not a comfortable feeling. And I think this is kind of, yeah, the first time you really see the potential for them wanting different things or moving in different directions. And this is why I didn't particularly like him because I think if had he done it to a different character, they're all adults or near enough, but because she's a child and impressionable and he's there like rabbiting in her ear being like, Oh, don't trust this person, trust that person. And yes, it it's, he's doing it for, you know, to protect her, but he's also doing it for self-preservation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a really hard scene to write. It's hard to sometimes, well, I find it sometimes hard to take characters that you love and make them or know that they, they're going to fuck up. Like there is a conflict here that is going to bubble to the surface through intention or, or lack thereof. But yeah, this is why I think a lot of people are going to dislike Skadi and some people will like him. He's a conflictful character because he does something that is quite appalling, taking over Inara and making her do kind of like what he wants, which he thinks is for her own good, but she's completely taken away her agency. And that for him kind of he's like oh I should have done this ages ago this is so easy this is so great we can actually do what I want to do now rather than just like pandering to a child and the forgiveness they sort of or the movement towards forgiveness they reach by the end of the book is not the end of that story um because that was was a terrible thing to do and I think kind of that fear of losing her power again is going to stay with her I don't think she could ever see him the same way again, which is probably for the best because, yeah, he isn't a pet. He is a, a god. He's potentially centuries old and she doesn't really know that they're not the same age. Um, and yeah, the power between them is really tipped or skewed. For me, it felt as well like a real betrayal of trust. Like she's done so much to try and keep him safe and he must know how she sees him and that she sees him in this kind of cute pet like way and it's like now maybe this has been the first time that it's been suitable or maybe for some reason he felt a bit more powerful in that moment but he's now taken that step it's like, mm. it just yeah, felt he's... like he betrayed her trust completely with that yeah um I think kind of it's also for him a moment where well he kind of realizes you know how far he went wrong but it is, it is a betrayal. I was going to say as well, I feel like now it's happened once. It's easy. Because it's obviously he's, he's a god, so not human nature. But human nature is you kind of push and you take advantage. Not everyone, but generally human nature can be like that. So now he knows that he's done it once and she's kind of forgiven him and they've kind of moved on. I just feel like in books two and three, it would just be so easy for it to happen again. It could be. She also grows in power 
as a character as well. But at the end of the day, like they want different things. And Skadi sees himself as a victim. Like he sees himself as like, well, I'm stuck in this world that wants to kill me with a child uh, who is also stuck in this little house, you know? So he sees himself as like the things that he does is to get his freedom, is to be realize who he is. And Inara throughout this book wants her freedom too, but so she can get revenge. So he wants to be safe, but she wants to dive into the action or sort of becomes closer to that. And so that wedge between them currently exists and may be driven deeper. Moving away from that, because we're not going to get any more out of you, clearly. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, the other sort of thing that happens in that scene is Elo says he's a singer and Nat, who's this annoying little sort of kid in the tavern. Well, that's, I assume he's a kid. He seems quite young. He calls his bluff. And so Elo gets up to sing a rude song and tells Inara to close her ears. I mean, was this a fun scene to write? Because I, the lyrics were, were quite entertaining. <laughs> I mean, the amount of time I spent coming up with sort of euphemisms for sex, but in this other world, they couldn't be the same ones that we had. Oh, yeah, it was loads of fun. I mean, songs in fantasy are sometimes those kind of parts that you just sort of skip through, but I just kind of wanted it to be funny and you kind of like funny without being disparaging. I love old rhymes and and soldering songs and they're usually to keep people moving or to keep spirits up. It was also a chance to show another side to Elo, Elo who he was and Elo who he kind of could be, who is a bit more, bit less reserved than he is now, who is like he, who he is now has gone through a lot of horror, but who he was, was kind of a young man who was tossed into the middle of a war um, with a load of his compatriots um, and comrades and you know they'd be sitting around campfires singing silly sex songs and marching <laughs> along and getting like mud up their calves and just having a sometimes in the face of horror you need to have a bit of lightness and humor and that's kind of what he had and so it was it was hilarious to write um, I actually wrote way more um, than that but I just <laughs> cut it way back the moment when Inara kind of realizes, because at first she mentions kissing, and she's like, "Why would you, why would you want to kiss like a toad?" And then she's kind of like, "Oh, wait, <laughs> you're a sweet, yeah. sweet child. Sweet you have so child. much to learn. <laughs> Just wait till you grow up." Oh, I, yeah. We have a few other people in the group, and one line we really did enjoy was when Beric tells Batsida. 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 It's your body, my love. It is your choice when referring to the route to take not to get pregnant. And this route also gets mentioned again when Kissin and Elo sleep together. So why did you put this detail in? So at that point, what Beric is referring to is, is not just the route, but it's whether they should turn back and not ask the favour of the god to, to remove Batsida's uh, fertility and instead rely on, on herbal con- contraceptives to make sure she doesn't get pregnant. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then later on, it's because um, they sit together. I mean, for me, I guess just writing fantasy and like kind of people having having sex in it or the chances that people might have sex in it. I just think, you know, with sex, periods, contraceptives, babies, like these things could happen. And, you know, you kind of want to have people have the common sense of <laughs> using something that's going to stop a baby happening. Um, I did actually have between Kissin and Elo um, a bit of a scene where they used like a sheath or an old style condom. So I was looking into like older contraceptives and stuff. 
but was told that was a bit too unsexy for the scene, uh, which I still vehemently disagree with. We should make condoms sexy again. But, you know, I safe sexual practice is, is a great thing. Condoms are sexy. Contraceptives are sexy. And, and if you don't want a baby, you should have some pretty good reasons and options to not be pregnant. Was it always your plan that they would end up sleeping together or that developers you were writing? In the first draft, they did. And so that was my first plan uh, was to kind of bring out a romance between them. But in my second draft, I took that scene out and I just kind of had them with just sort of a friendship or a close friendship. And then in the third draft, I brought it back in again uh, with some some editorial advice uh, because it was already there and I'd already written it. And it was kind of it was a nice culmination of their relationship, um, the sort of comfort and um, sort of even ground, I guess, they find in sex. But yeah, I kind of see them as fuck buddies, maybe. Maybe romance will develop, maybe it won't. We'll find out. But, you know, they kind of work well together. The scene where they're fighting, where they have the sword fight, I sort of thought of that as a bit of a almost foreplay. foreplay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like sword fighting is not necessarily sexy, but with the right people and the sword right mood, is always sexy. <laughs> <laughs> with them, it was definitely sexy. Oh yeah, I think that's kind of was the point when I was writing it, where I was like, "Yeah, these guys are gonna bang." That's the point where I kind of thought, "It's like she already thinks he's handsome," and now yeah, they're having this sword fight. And he's admiring in there. her like sword fighting skills. It's like you will. Yeah, I mean, he just thinks she's fascinating and stunning and great at fighting. And she thinks he has a great face and nice thighs. So <laughs> it's a match made in heaven. Who doesn't want someone with a nice face and nice thighs? <laughs> well, I imagined them both really hot. So I think that helped. Like I imagined her like Karen Gillan. I don't know why. I think maybe because you said she had red hair or reddish oh, hair. Oh. And that's how I imagined her. Like, even when they kept saying, oh, there's a scar on your face. I was like, she's still hot. <laughs> I was like, Karen Gillen. Yeah, Karen Gillen is extremely hot. That's true. Um, yeah, well, you can imagine her how you want. Even actually as Nebula in Guardians of the Galaxy, she's hot. Very true. I think she's too skinny for kissing, though. I imagine her as like a big, like gorgeous. Um, I kind of describe her as like a bear-like woman. But, you know, Karen Gillen has a good face, good hair, good attitude. So this is the thing I mentioned earlier, and it's kind of the psychology of some of the real minor characters in the book. So we meet Kissen, we have the opening scene, and then we meet Kissen, and she's doing a job as a god killer to go and attack this god. And she gives the god's totem to the person who's hired her, but he doesn't want to destroy it. He's almost happy, like, okay, the god's been contained for now. They're not going to do badness but we could still get things from them because they're weak again and it's like just I just find it so bizarre that people still wanted these gods around even when they've turned nasty and we're not talking about poor people with the little tiny shrines with the gods that don't have a body I'm talking about gods that are actually a threat bad god yeah yeah like she's attacked in the pub by people because she's destroyed this god that's actively hurt people in their community it's like is it really worth it I mean personally probably not but I think that's kind of it does come into people's uh you know sometimes people get very viciously angry about things that they believe in and violence kind of can come come from that 
um, and sort of protecting what they believe in as well, what they see as, as protecting. What Tessas wants to do with the with the the totem of the god is essentially sell it back to the people who love her. Like he he's the one who called Kissin to come and mm. kill it. And the god could be resurrected, but without the same shrine, without kind of the same the body, like they would be re- resurrected with different memories in a different way. Um, and maybe he could hope for that being a slightly nicer version. But he basically wants to please everyone. Like he needs to get rid of the god, which is you know demanding blood from people and sort of withholding food uh, in order to get those those offerings. But he also wants to stay on the side of the people who who love her, who potentially will come to violence, who uh, vehemently believe in in that god. And so he's trying to play both sides, and that's kind of definitely some moral ambivalence coming in here. Is that gods? are not inherently necessarily good or inherently necessarily bad, but they can become so and they can ask for too much. Kissam thinks that's inevitable, um, that gods will always start asking for and demanding more and continuing to do so. And other characters potentially don't agree. And Tessus, the settle who calls for her, basically just wants to get out of there with an ability to take a bribe maybe for the totem keep on their good side, keep on the god killer's good side, please everyone and not get in trouble. There's a point where Elo says, well, you it's you know that he's said to like King Aaron back when um when they were fighting the gods before that he could no longer tear down the shrines of innocent people's gods. I think that's a really nice sentiment, but at what point do they stop just being innocent people's gods and start being a problem? That's a question I can't answer. I don't think I can answer it for this world and I don't think I can answer it for my own. Um, no. I definitely don't come down on any particular... I think faith can be a wonderful, wonderful thing for a lot of people. It's got a lot of sense of community. It's got a sense of, of something more than the life that one has. And I've got a lot of people in my life who do have, who have faith in, in their own beliefs and their own sort of religions and cultures. I think that's that's fantastic. But then faith can also be used to to hurt people and religion can be used to hurt people. And there is no perfect line for that. And that line is in this book, um, treaded by both gods and people. And I think kind of there's never going to be a perfect solution to that in, in the tale of kind of like all gods are bad or all gods are good. Um, and I think there would be, I just can't, come down on one side or the other but there's all sorts of various challenges that both sides of the argument will have to face as the story carries on I do sort of feel as well like the gods are almost it sounds like a really weird thing to say because they're these big all-powerful beings or they could have the potential to become big all-powerful beings but they seem almost addicted to love and prayer and devotion and just stuff they can get because with Skeddy, that moment when he speaks through Anara for the first time and he gets the feeling from Nat, like the his reaction, it's almost like, oh, I, I want this. And it's, it doesn't take much for him to almost start turning power hungry. And mm. it always yeah. seems like an addiction. But him in that case, like kind of that's the first real offering that he's got. There are other gods in the story who aren't quite as as power hungry you kind of exist without that so much I think Arne is a really good example of that it's like Arne has existed for a really long time has never really 
step beyond the god that she is she's kind of satisfied with the worshippers and the love that she has at the moment but it can change as people can change as gods can change start wanting more than what they have want to be bigger be more loved be grandly adored to have multiple shrines in multiple places so they get kind of can move around more some gods find that desirable speaking of Anne they the group get to her and when making a deal Inara says she's learned too much to offer you an open favor and Kissen seems really proud of this she's she's really starting to warm to Inara here isn't she like as an actual person yeah that's it's kind of Kissen has pitied Inara before and wants to look after her but Inara is kind of coming into her awe now and Kissen's a little bit scared of her as well but also is proud that she's listening to her she's learning she's kind of like she's a good kid I think is what's going through Kissen's head um so yeah I kind of I liked that Inara was also starting to listen to Kissen and see her as a kind of a source of mentorship and, and information and guidance and so they kind of are moving closer together here. Kissen had some great lines. I think some of my favourite lines came from her. So one of my favourites was, how did she end up with three idiots, all of them neck deep in trouble? I think that was <laughs> my absolute favourite. Do you think she secretly enjoyed having them around? Because she she was depending on herself for so long. Do oh, she think, loved Yeah, do you think it. she secretly liked it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, she kind of like, pissed, like annoys her too, and I think it kind of annoys her how much she enjoys being around people, even though they're all like kind of getting into scrapes. And she's like, for God's sake, I just like you know fix that mess. And now oh, there's another one, but she does. She kind of gets used to people in the same way she kind of describes her trainer got used to her, and how yeah. god killers often function on their own. They used to be kind of like rat catchers, and now they're sort of uh, facilitated by the king. But she kind of realizes that. It's actually really nice having people around um, and being able to depend on someone other than yourself. She kind of has that when she goes home, but she also kind of sees herself as the guardian of, of Yapo and Tele, her, her sisters. And she also kind of like sees herself as the protector of this group. But she's like, oh, it's actually great to have people around, someone to chat to, someone to annoy. Like it's, uh, it's fun for her. A found family, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I think that's kind of something that's really important to me I suppose is as I described earlier is community is people around you who understand who you are and accept you as you are and yeah I think found family I mean Kissen's all Kissen's family is found like her sisters are found like in Nara she kind of adopts Elo well she fucks but it's it's all people who she learns that well she she already knows that the value in people isn't necessarily shared by blood alone it is by people who you care about and care about you building a community almost to help her exactly and this leads me on to a point where you've written Skeddy and Inara could be further apart now than they had before was it because Inara loved him less or because Kissin and Elo cared for him more and I'm I'm not sure I think Kissin really ever lets her guard down with him I think there'll always there's always going to be distrust there because she spent so long fighting the gods. You know, they've killed her family because they wanted to appease a god. You know, the neighbors killed her family on behalf of a god, mm-hmm. whether or not that god told them to. So as an author, what you say goes. What's your opinion? 
I, I, I don't think as an author what I say goes. I think readers, now the book is, is finished, it's out in the world. It belongs to readers as much as it belongs to me. So my opinion is that I, I agree with you mostly. Like there will always be distrust there, but it becomes a little bit less stark. It becomes a little less um, black and white to this kissing, like vulnerabilities, choices, fears, fuck ups, mistakes actually make the gods have made Sketty a little bit more human to her because she's really only ever seen the worst possible side of gods. She's only called to interact with them really when they've done something terrible. And I think in all of us, in as I said earlier, in gods as well, there is a potential to change and learn to care for things that are not how we've always perceived them. And so I think Kissin will never fully trust a god of white lies, but there is a potential for care there as well. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. And as a reader, I think your interpretation makes complete sense in the character of Kissin. I also think that there's, in distrust, there is a seed of potential for love as well. I am pretty sure that you are not going to answer this question. I know it's going to be something like read book two, read book three, but we have to ask anyway. <laughs> we have theories. Is Anara Aaron's child? I'm not telling you the answer oh, to that. Go. You <laughs> knew that. Yeah, that I would did. be a telling. I no. did know that. But it's like her mom was the king's favorite and Inara had powers and Aaron had had his life saved by God. Like... Mm. We're not just plucking this theory out of thin air. There, there is some evidence. So you've woven some threads yeah, that make us think whether it's whether you've just done that and <laughs> her dad's just going to be, I don't know, some random random fisherman in some village somewhere. But <laughs> I think possibly not. We'll see. Read we shall two. see. Read book two and read book three. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I would I would like you to. I just knew you wouldn't answer that question. I mean, no, I was never going to answer that question. I love that you've read the book and you've got your own sort of perception and like kind of ideas about it. It's just like, it makes me quite emotional. It's, it's the most, it's so exciting for me to have this world sit in your head for years and then it belong to someone else now. Yeah, no, nope, now I'm going to start crying. So I'm not going to do that. We're grand. <laughs> I'm stoic. I'm strong. Is it exciting or scary? Because obviously now you've put so much work into this. You've lived with these characters. You've lived with this world for so long. And now it's out into the open. And, and do you ever get people just think of something and you're like, I never even considered that? I'm sure that will happen. Um, this is also one of the reasons why um, I would try not to, to read too many reviews. Um, because people will have their own ideas and some of them will be better than mine and I don't want to uh, steal them. I need to, I'll be writing only my own parts of the world. Um, but I think that'd be fantastic. Like if, if people kind of take the story or the world and run with it and make it their own, yeah, more power to them. They'd be bloody brilliant. We had one author on, I can't remember which one it was, and they said that their mum used to send them negative reviews that people <laughs> had written to help because they, it might be constructive for them. <laughs> I really wish I could remember who it was. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, negative reviews are just a natural part of writing. Like the story won't work for everyone. And some people expect one thing and get another. Like that's just, just how it is. But uh, I'm really glad my mum hasn't taken to sending me them because 
honestly I just I just turn off my phone and be like right that's it <laughs> my, my poor little heart can't take it I'm sure your mom is very proud yeah she tweeted about it the other day it was so cute one of my favorite things was a video that an author had put online where them they and their mom were in they're American if they were in somewhere like oh they're in Target that was it uh-huh. and someone that worked there was just reading their book and the author's mom tried to drag the author over there uh-huh. and say my daughter wrote this book she's here do you want me to sign it and she actually like went into the staff room to drag this person out and um the oh person said they were never gonna go back to that target again <laughs> no no that's very well so I grew up in a very <laughs> small village in the middle of nowhere um and its nearest town does have a waterstones and I think several of my mates and both my parents have gone in and been like so we've got a local author we know she put can you put up a display for her? and I'm like Jesus Christ those poor booksellers must be absolutely terrified <laughs> I went into our like I think we've been into a few Waterstones and given them we have bookmarks yeah for the podcast and we gave them to like some Waterstones is like can we leave our bookmarks here that's awesome yeah so, I think that's fine I think kind of uh, I think that's really good to like kind of support the podcast and support like uh, independent movements but I'm also like I don't want my whole family going in and just like <laughs> be like we know her we know her and I'll be like hey. I think there's something quite nice about it oh yeah, I suppose it is very cute, but don't encourage them. <laughs> well, so careful, my nana will get a walking stick out and start beating up anyone who doesn't buy it. <laughs> Good old nana. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us. So, I mean, what do you have coming up? We know that you are doing some events. And I will have seen you yesterday at the point where this episode comes out. Uh-huh. And it's kind of like promo time for the book. So what have you got coming up for the rest of the year and maybe release time for book two? Have you got anything? I know it's so early, like this book's barely been printed, but. Oh, yeah. I mean, book two is uh, it's going to be sort of chundling along the tracks uh, quick on its heels. So the week after this one. Um, I've got an event in uh, Glasgow uh, on Socky Hall Street, the Waterstones there. Um, so that will be um, sort of a Glasgow launch. And then I have one at a local bookshop in Edinburgh called Argonaut, um, which will be kind of like a little Edinburgh launch. Um, and it's like my one of my favourite bookshops in Edinburgh. And so I'm really excited. And then hopefully I'll be going around some of the the indies and the bigger bookshops around Edinburgh and, and doing some signings and chatting to some of the booksellers uh, who have probably already had me chatting to them quite a lot because I, I really like all the bookshops here and I do like especially when walking around the city I'll pop into them as uh, often as I can um, and then I've got an event in Liverpool uh, which I'm really excited about because I absolutely love Liverpool and one in York as well I can't remember which way around they are uh, one's in March and one's in April and the York one is for the York Literature Festival the Liverpool one is at the uh, at Liverpool Waterstones and then I'm hopefully going to be going to Chimera Festival in Edinburgh as well um, so this is that's that's it for now but I'm hoping that there's going to be more I really want to pop down to to Gateshead and Newcastle um, and sort of go into some of the bookshops there and yeah it's mainly mainly based in the north but uh, I'll, I'll go anywhere to be honest 
and someone in Devon asked me if I would come to Cornwall and I was like absolutely invite me and I'll be there in a flash where can people find you on socials if they want to keep up to date with all of the events you're doing so I will be doing mainly updates on Twitter um partly because I'm not funny enough to do anything else and I will be posting pictures and stuff on on Instagram so Instagram I'm at hanfrancan and on Twitter I'm at hfkna just to be nice and confusing um but that's I'll be always putting updates on there and, and making it as accurate as possible uh, as long as I remember things and on my website as well I put on uh, digital events which I kind of classify this as um, as well as in-person events so if anyone can't make an in-person event then they can um, access it online as well. We'll put all of your information in our episode description for people to find so they can sort of follow you and just keep up to date with everything because I'm sure after people read this they'll be itching for more. I hope so. Well, I'm excited for book two. <laughs> thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Hannah. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast. Come and leave us a message. Also, check out our website at www.demythpod.co.uk. She's been Lauren. I've been Charlotte. And today, we've been turning pages with Hannah Kainer. See you next time.